This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. As I watched that, that video, the, the line that struck me the, the most was that the world's greatest problem is lostness. Every other problem stems from that problem, lostness. And so over the next few weeks as we, we press toward our Lottie Moon Christmas offering, our, our end gathering for that is December the 10th, <clears throat> the 10th, and our goal as a church is $60,000 to reach the last, the least, and the lost with the good news of Jesus. Because the world's greatest problem is lostness. Every other problem stems from that. Let's pray together as we prepare to study the scripture. Father, we thank you for being a part of a church that is seeking to touch our community and the world with the gospel. Lord, as we look around us, we see all kinds of problems. We don't have to look far. We see them in our own culture and in our, our own country. But we thank you that at least here, we have access to the, the gospel. But Lord, we, we know that there are, are people groups around the world that, that right now have no access or little access to, to the gospel. And so Lord, you have called us as a church to reach not only the neighborhoods, but the nations with the gospel. You command us to go and make disciples of all nations. And so, Lord, over these next few weeks, as we push toward our, our Lottie Moon end gathering, we pray that you would grip our hearts with a vision as large as the vision that Jesus gave us. That all peoples, every tribe and tongue would know Christ. That joyous praises to you would redound from every people group on earth. And Lord, part of being Great Commission Christians is being equipped in your word. And so we pray that you would do that right now as we open up your word together and study the scripture. Equip us now to be sent out on mission in our world and around the world. It's the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Okay, so we have been in a series uh, this fall in 1 Timothy, Fight the Good Fight, and today we are in our, our last uh, passage in 1 Timothy, so I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 6 this morning. Paul has got some final words to Timothy and to us. And as we look at the passage this morning, what we're going to see are four imperatives that Paul is giving to Timothy and to you and me. Four imperatives, four final words as we finish up this series. First Timothy chapter 6 
And we're going to look at verses 11 through 21. We actually covered verses 17 through 19 last week, so uh, we'll skip that. Um, but let's look at these last, these last words of the letter of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, and let's begin here with verse 11. He says, but you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God, who gives life to all, and of Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate. I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal power. Amen. Let's get to verse 20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some people have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. So in London, the, the subway system is called the, the tube. And when Melissa and I were, were there this past summer, we rode that tube all over the city. We had so much fun together. And it was even, we even had fun trying to figure out, you know, how the tube worked. <laughs> but one thing we didn't have to figure out about the tube, and that is don't get in front of it. <laughs> the trains are moving really fast. You don't want to be in front. And uh, the authorities are, uh, they're trying to make sure that nobody gets in front. And so as the train approaches in the tube station, you'll hear a voice come on the intercom that says, mind the gap. That's British for don't get close to the edge of the platform, you know, create margin between you and the oncoming train. And what Paul is saying to Timothy here and saying to us is create margin between yourself and sin. And that's the first word, the first imperative that we see here, and it's flee, flee. Let's check out the beginning of verse 11 that we read. He says, but you, man of God, flee from these things. Now, notice here that Paul addresses Timothy as, a, as a, a man of God. That comes from the Old Testament. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's a phrase that's used 68 times. And it's used of Moses, used of David, it's used of the prophets. And Paul refers to Timothy here as a, a man of God. What he's communicating here to Timothy is, Timothy, hey, never forget who you are. This is your identity. You know, we live in a world that is obsessed with identity. As a follower of Christ, you've got to remember your identity. You are a man of God or a woman of God. 
You are, or 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are ambassadors for Christ. It means that we represent him. And we want to represent him well. So how do we do that? First of all, we do that by fleeing from things that would dishonor him. And so let's look again at verse 11. He says, but you, man of God, flee from these things. What things? Well, the stuff he just finished talking about, right? Um, in verses 9 and 10, he was talking about the love of money, greed. In verses 3 through 5, he talks about false doctrine. He talks about conceit. He talks about an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. He talks about envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. Do you want that train wreck to be you or your church? No. Then run. <laughs> Flee. Flee from all these things. Right? So that's the first imperative. Flee. Second imperative that we see here, follow after. Follow after. Let's look at the latter part of verse 11. He says, pursue. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. In other words, there are things that we need to be fleeing from and things that we need to be following after. Stuff that we need to run from and stuff that we need to run to. What are we to pursue? What are we to follow after? Well, first of all, righteousness. Now, if you are in Christ... You've already been made positionally righteous. The perfect righteousness of Christ has been credited to your account. But Paul here is talking about practical righteousness. He's talking about living out righteousness in your life. He's talking about the fruit of righteousness, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1.11. 1 Corinthians 1.11, uh, Philippians 1.11 says, says that as Christians we're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So pursue righteousness. Second, godliness. Is your life oriented toward the Lord? Are you practicing the presence of God? Are you walking in the spirit? Pursue godliness. And then faith. You know, in my one year Bible reading over the past few weeks, one of the books I've been in is Luke, and I'm struck again and again just by how Jesus delighted in and was honored by people just trusting in him. And in Luke 8, 22 and following, you have one of these incidents out on the, the, the lake. It says, one day he and his disciples got into a boat, and he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they were sa sailing, he fell asleep. Then a fierce windstorm came down on the lake. They were being swamped and were in danger. They came and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're going to die. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. So they ceased and there was a calm. He said to them, where's your faith? Hey, where's your faith today? Pursue faith. And then love, love. At the beginning of this letter, Paul said in, in chapter 1 and verse 5, the aim of our instruction is love. 
And now he's saying it here at the end of the letter. Love is like bookends, the beginning and end of the the letter. Pursue love. He said in chapter 4 and verse 12, to set an example for the believers in in speech and conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. Love. Pursue love. Pursue endurance, which could be translated also as steadfastness or perseverance. Listen, Paul knew that Timothy was in an incredibly difficult situation in Ephesus. He was, he was going to need to endure. We're called to endurance. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 says, Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. The Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And then pursue gentleness. When it comes to endurance, we're to be tough. When it comes to the way that we relate to to people, be tender. Practice gentleness. So follow after these things. So there's stuff we need to flee, follow after. Third, fight. Fight. Look at the beginning of of verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Now, this is yet another athletic metaphor in a letter that has been full of them. And the Greek word here for fight, it, it, looks, like, it looks like our word agonize or agony. And that's exactly where it comes from. That's where we get those words from. We get it from this Greek word, right? And literally, Paul's saying here, agonize the good agony, <laughs> In other words, the, 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 word, the word picture here is of, of an athlete who is digging deep. It, it, it was used either in boxing or in running. You know, think about a, a boxer who's coming out for the, you know, the final round and exhausted and just has to dig deep, right, to find, to find something else to keep going. Or a runner, right, a long-distance runner who, who's at that, that final part of the race, you know, you've you got to dig deep deep, right? Find, find that strength to, you know, to, finish, to finish strong. That's, that's the word picture here. My son, uh, who lives in, in, in Richmond, uh, texted me a couple of weeks ago, and, and he, he said he had just run a half marathon. And uh, he hadn't trained for the marathon or the half marathon or anything. It's, it's nice being in your, your 20s, you know. Um, and so he was, out, he was out on a Thursday during, during lunch, and he works in downtown Richmond. And so he was out, and his company was one of the sponsors of the, of the half marathon. And he walked out, and he saw people that they were setting up for the race or whatever. And he's like, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to run this half, half marathon. And so he, he ran it, and uh, he sent me... Um, you know, he, I didn't know he was going to run it, but after, after he ran it, he, he texted, he screenshotted uh, his splits, which is his mile-by-mile his mile breakdown of the, of the half marathon, and he, he sent me his, his splits, and, uh, which were, you know, r- remarkable, and the, what was even more remarkable was that his fastest mile was his 13th mile, the final mile of the race was far and away his, his fastest, and he, you know, and so... He obviously, you know, he was digging down deep, right, to find, to find another gear, right? The, third, the final mile after you've already run 12, you know, di- digging deep. And, and underneath, his, uh, underneath his splits, his mile-by-mile mile breakdown, he, he rewrote the words, um, 
Pain is weakness leaving the body. <laughs> I'm thinking, where did he get that from? So I looked it up. Um, and originally, <clears throat> it came from Chesty Puller, who was a great Marine commander in the Pacific during World War II. And Chesty Puller said this, pain <clears throat> is weakness leaving the body. The question isn't how much more you can take, but how much more you can give. Just when you're ready to quit, your mind says push harder. You listen, sensing an inner strength that wasn't there before, and suddenly you discover you no longer feel pain. This is how we're to fight, <laughs> right? You, you, re you reach down deep, right, to a level that you didn't even know you can go. But God gives you the strength to go there, right? And, and, and what are we to fight for, right? Fight the good fight of what? Fight the good fight of the faith. What have we seen in this letter that has been under attack in Ephesus? The faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. It has been under attack by these false uh, teachers in Ephesus. And Paul is telling Timothy, listen, you got to fight the good fight for the faith. If the faith is going to be preserved and proclaimed, we got to fight for it. You know, Jude 3 says this, dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend, fight for the faith, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, the body of truth, of, of, of gospel doctrine, the truth of the, the word of God. That's worth fighting for with everything that you've got. Now listen, are we, we're living in a culture just like first century Ephesus, right, where where the, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints is under attack in, in all kinds of directions. And we are to fight the good fight for the faith. That means standing on God's word, not compromising God's word, standing for the truth the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You know, during uh, the, the 70s and, and 80s, um, our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, kind of, you know, there was, there was a recognition um, that in the 70s that, uh, that the, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints was being... Uh, watered down and compromised even in our own even in our own seminaries where our pastors were being trained where our missionaries were being trained and so you know adrian rogers and some other uh, pastors alongside him said look you know we got to fight the good fight for the faith or, or we're gonna we're gonna lose it you know and there were people who said during those days hey let's just not let's not have that fight Let's just focus on missions. And what Dr. Rogers and these other pastors said was, look, if, if we don't know where we stand on the Bible, there's not gonna be any missions. 
I mean, you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you're gonna, not gonna go to other countries and go to the hardest peoples and places on earth to deliver the gospel to them if you don't stand on the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's not gonna happen, right? And so we gotta fight the good fight of the faith, right? That means standing on the word of God, but also, you know, in our daily lives, we're in a fight. You're in a fight every day. The Christian is in a fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're in a fight with the world, right? Not, not you know, the people of the world, right? We're not against them, they're, they're, they're lost, they need Christ. The fight is with the, pre- but there's a pressure to conform to the, the world's values. The world's way of doing things, the, the world's way of thinking, right? There's a constant pressure to conform to that. We gotta fight against that. You can't be conformed. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? So that's a fight, the world. There's a fight with the flesh. That's our own sin nature. Sometimes the greatest enemy is the one within. <laughs> Each of us is dealing with our own sin nature, our own flesh. Right? That's a fight. And then the devil. We've got a supernatural enemy who is seeking to take us out, to destroy us. Right? That's a fight. The Christian life is a fight. Now listen, we do that with joy. Right? Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. We do it as joyful warriors but make no mistake, you're called to be a warrior. <laughs> We're in a fight, right? Fight the good fight of the faith. The fourth word is fasten onto. Fasten onto. Let's check out the latter part here of verse 12. He says, take hold, take hold of, fasten onto, grip right? Take hold of, fasten onto what? Eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now the, now the term take hold of here means to grip with all your might. I mean, even to grip violently, hold onto this as hard as you can. And he tells Timothy to take hold of what? Of eternal life. He said, well, Hadn't Timothy already been given eternal life? Of course, every believer has. John 3, 36, Jesus says, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. So eternal life is the present possession of the believer. It's not just something we get when we die. No, we have it now. If you're in Christ, you have eternal life. And Timothy did have eternal life, of course. But what Paul is saying here is that, son, I want you to grip the fact that you are in his grip. Fasten on to, take hold of, grip the fact that you are in God's grip and he's not gonna let you go. John chapter 10 and verse 28. 
Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now listen, it's one thing to to believe that intellectually, but it's another thing for that to be deeply appropriated in your life so that you live each day knowing the deepest part of you that you are in the grip of God, right? That you're in the Father's grip. It's given you eternal life. It's not gonna let you go. Changes our lives when we live that way. And that's what Paul is saying here. And and then he he talks about the, the, the confession that Timothy had made. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He's probably talking here about the day of Timothy's baptism, right? When the early Christians were, were baptized, just like when people are baptized in our church, they, make, they made a confession. Jesus is Lord, right? That's what, by the way, that's, you know, an, an infant can't make that confession, right? Only, only disciples can, you know, can make that confession. So that's why we don't, we don't have infant baptism here. We believe that biblically, that baptism is for believers, it's for disciples who, 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 can, who can stand there in, as they're baptized and make that confession. Jesus is Lord. So Paul here is taking Timothy back to that moment, the moment of his baptism, and he's saying, hey listen, you remember that day when you made that good confession? God was with you then. He's with you now. He's not going to let go of you. It's encouragement, right? And then he, he, he talks about another source of encouragement. Verses 13 and 14. He says, in the presence of God, who gives life to all, and of Christ Jesus, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will bring this about in his own time. Now, now Paul talks about another confession. That's the confession that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate, that he was a king. Now listen, that good confession that Christ made before Pontius Pilate, that confession led to the cross the very next day. And Paul is saying here, Timothy, you have been entrusted with the gospel and you are to hold on to that, the charge that you've been given. Hold on to it without fault or failure, either until the the day that Christ returns or until the day when your blood is running on the ground. You gotta take up your cross and follow Jesus. You know, whatever that means. There's a scene in the movie Darkest Hour about Churchill and the early days of World War II. And in this particular scene, uh, Churchill was meeting with his military commanders and there are 300,000 British troops that are stuck on the beaches at Dunkirk in France in danger of being slaughtered. And so they're trying to figure out, you know, how can we get these guys out of there? We gotta rescue these 300,000 troops. And then they they see that there's a garrison of 4,000 British troops 25 miles to the west of Dunkirk in Calais. 
And so Churchill decides, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna, to, in order to pull the Germans away and ease the pressure on Dunkirk, this, this, this garrison of 4,000, 25 miles to the west, is going to divert the Germans by inviting their wrath. He says, we, we, want all, we want the Germans to fix all of their tanks, all their artillery, all their bombers on this, this force of 4,000 at Calais so that the 300,000 can be rescued. Churchill says, who's the commander of the garrison? It's a Brigadier Nicholson. And Churchill says, to order him to fight even to the destruction of his command. Churchill knew what that meant. He had fought in the trenches in World War I bravely. He knew that essentially what he was having to order was the sacrifice of 4,000 men so that 300,000 could be rescued. They were being ordered to fight to the death. Paul here is saying to, to Timothy, look, just as Christ made that confession that led to his death, you are to stay faithful in this situation, either until Jesus comes <clears throat> or until your blood is running on the ground. That's the charge. Now, in order to do that faithfully, Timothy was gonna have to be fortified by a vision of the majesty of God. Look at this portrait of God that we see in the latter part of verses 15 and 16. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal power. In order to have the courage that he needs to endure, to fight the good fight, Paul's, Timothy's got to have a vision of the majesty of the God that loves us and the God that we serve, right? We need that, that vision of God and his beauty and majesty. And then this final charge in verse 20, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, or literally guard the deposit. In the first century, that, that phrase was used, if you, were, if you were leaving the most valuable, the most precious possession in the hands of someone else, that's what you would say. Guard the deposit, right? This thing is, this is precious. The most precious thing, the most valuable thing, right? You're, you're, you're leaving that in someone's hands for safekeeping. What, what, is, what has Timothy been entrusted with? What's the deposit? It's the gospel. The gospel. The precious gospel. That's what he's given to us, to every believer. Guard that good deposit. Preserve the gospel and proclaim the gospel. And something that brings us back to the centrality of the gospel again and again is the ordinance of the Lord's Supper that we're getting ready to take part in. So as we get ready to do that, let's pray, to, let's bow in prayer together.
Thanksgiving is just a few days away. We have so much to be thankful for. But the first thing as followers of Christ that we're thankful for is the work of Christ. We're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful that his blood was shed for sinners like us. That Jesus went to the cross on our behalf, that he made the good confession that led to the cross. And we confess that we belong to him. We do that on the day of our baptism. We do it as we take the Lord's Supper. We're to do it every day of our lives. We're followers of Jesus. The one who died for us, whose blood was shed for us, whose body was broken for us. And the reason that we can celebrate that is because he rose from the dead. Which means that he truly was who he said he was. That he truly was atoning for our sins as he died on the cross. That we can be forgiven. That we can have new life and eternal life through our crucified buried and risen Savior. As we prepare to, to take part in the supper that Christ ordained, hey, listen, where are you? Where are you as far as a relationship with God? Do you know Christ? Because the Lord's Supper has, has no meaning for you if you don't. Have you turned to Jesus and trusted in him as your savior and Lord and king? Who's in charge of your life? Is it you or Christ? Repent and believe. Turn to Christ and trust him now. Give your life to him. Christian, where are you in your relationship with the Lord? Is your life oriented to the Lord like we talked about? Are you practicing the presence of God? Are you walking in the spirit? Is there sin that's, that's hindering your fellowship with God? The scripture says to, that, that we should examine ourselves before we take the bread and the cup. This is a time to draw near. Draw near to the Lord. Repent of of known sin in your life? Is there a relationship with another brother or sister that needs to be restored? Are you holding on to sin that you refuse to give up? A grudge that needs to be taken care of? Forgiveness that needs to be extended? Why do we do that? Because we've been forgiven. This is all about forgiveness that we didn't deserve, but that we have through Christ.
Let's take a few moments right now just in, in doing business with the Lord. Time of confession of our sins before him. have some moments now of thanksgiving we're, we're approaching we're approaching thanksgiving in a few days and you know for our culture that's that's a day when you know we just get together and 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 eat but you know for christians it, it should have a fuller meaning than that we we know that um our lives as believers are to be characterized by gratitude and, and first of all for what christ has done for us and then for all the, the things that come along with that, right? Let's have a time of thanksgiving before the Lord. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for, beginning with the fact that we have a Savior. And so, Lord, now as we, as we get ready to take part in the supper that he ordained, would you bring us back to the centrality of the work of Christ and what he's done on our behalf? I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.